I love hearing you talk about the Bond movies. That's what she said. Diamonds are Sparkling around my little finger. Unlike men, the diamonds linger. Men are mortals who are not going to Hello and welcome to the James Bond Complex. I'm the Intrepid 007 and welcome to the show. Hope you're doing well. We're back, of course, to talk about the film Diamonds Are Forever here on That's What She Said. So going to my notes um, and also to kind of uh, recap, we've done the series of Daniel Craig movies and we've done the Pierce Brosnan movies. We just finished with Die Another Day not too long ago, and that was probably to date one of the more controversial and weirder movies that we've done. Probably one of the ones that was ranked the lowest on the list, but... Diamonds Are Forever may set a new precedent for bad Bond movies. It's not my favorite. It's been shown as not being Joe Darlington or um, David Zaritsky's favorite. don't even believe it's a favorite knocking around here at the James Bond Complex. It is 50th anniversary this year. It premiered in December. There are plans for an organizational little meeting um, that's going to happen probably in the month of March, split between Amsterdam, Las Vegas, and Los Angeles. I might be present in Las Vegas, you never know. But it's still a movie that needs to be celebrated, because 50 years is is a, is a great feat. And it's also Sean Connery's swan song, or was supposed to be his swan song. It's at least his canon swan song uh, as Agent 007. So let's get right into it. It's kind of got this odd pre title sequence that we haven't seen before. It's kind of a little bit kitsch, and it's kind of a little bit of that 60s, 70s vibe where they're just trying to rush things along. Now, this will probably be one of the many times where this phrase is uttered, so warning in advance, but the phrase, what the shit, does happen quite often, and that's what she said. And I'm going to try and limit the curse words uh, in this uh, in this episode. Uh, but it starts off as, okay, sorry, what the shit. It's an odd beat of how the pre-title sequence is set up. They're kind of trying to retcon the events of Honor Majesty's Secret Service with the change of, the, of, of actors and the fact that it doesn't fall canically with You Only Live Twice. I mean, if you honestly wanted to watch the film's canon, you would actually watch Honor Majesty's Secret Service before uh, You Only Live Twice, but it just it doesn't make sense. This wasn't how it was supposed to be in the books, and the director's decided on her Majesty's Secret Service that they were going to follow everything strictly to the letter. In the novel of Diamonds Are Forever, Spectre isn't necessarily present either, So, uh, or Blofeld isn't at least. It's, it's a completely different um, smuggling operation, and the diamond smuggling is actually inspired by a non-fiction work of, of Ian Fleming called The Diamond Smugglers, so this is kind of one of those movies where they kind of try to fit it into the Spectre canon, at the same time as maybe dealing with all the legal repercussions of the McCory case, uh, but also kind of like rushing things along. And they do this thing as well where they recycle actors. Um, the actor who played Deco Henderson in um, He Only Lived Twice comes back as playing Blofeld. So Charles Gray appears in two Bond movies. Much like some of the Bond girls, I know that Martine Beswick appears in a pair. We see Ursula Andress appear in other stuff that's related famously as well. Maude Adams appears twice in two different roles in two different movies. So this is kind of like a repeat of that. We see it further on, too, between The Living Daylights and GoldenEye with, um, I'm trying to remember the actor's name, John Baker. sorry. 
who appears twice. So there's kind of that duality. This is another weird thing with this era of, of filmmaking. So now some of the other comments in the pre-title sequence, which is, you know, one of those sequences where we get a lot of comments, uh, usually because that's when we're both most focused. That thing he's got in his hands is like forceps for getting a baby out during child delivery. Oh, here's some guac all over your body, or is that dog barf? It's kind of this weird thing that happens in the pre-title sequence when he's looking for Blofeld and he's kind of finding his body doubles and they're rolling around in these, I guess they're supposed to be mud baths, but they do kind of have the same consistency as old guacamole or even, you know, really discolored mud. But in this case, uh, Double Wife believes that it would most probably have been dog barf and uh, having owned a dog and having owned many dogs, I can concur that the texture can be quite similar. He's got a gun in his dog barf bath. He had so much time to turn around. And then my wife went on to make the comment of this is kind of how sometimes I drive. And I'm kind of somewhat cautious when I drive when other people are in the car. I, I do let people pass maybe and I give them a little bit more time to pass when I'm crossing through an intersection. Uh, so she was comparing the time that it takes for him to turn around with the gun in the dog barf bath to my timing of crossing an intersection. It's it's a little bit slow, I suppose. The sound also was found to be awful, and I agree that the sound isn't the best in the pre-title sequence. It's, it's as if they spent so much money on getting Sean Connery back that they kind of missed out on spending money elsewhere. Not that it sounds cheap, but I think there's a lack of refinement, and the pre-title, sorry, the pre-title sequence is a little bit clunky. Look at his sideburns. How did he grow that? Uh, and then there was slow motion old man fight, and this is kind of char characteristic of some of the fight sequences in early Bond movies. They're either uh, missynchronized with the sound and the foley artist, or they're sped up, or in this case, they're kind of slowed down uh, to kind of match the pacing of, I was going to say the music, but there's no music in this in this intro. So much cat in the intro. Uh, Blofeld's cat does show up, for whatever reason, too much in the intro. Not really in context with anything else. Uh, he's just kind of there. Or she, I don't know if Blofeld's cat is is got a defined gender. Also, uh, about this time, my wife remarks that I'm not watching this again. I hope you know this. This is once in a lifetime. And I don't blame her. I probably will watch Diamonds Are Forever in the next couple of years. Maybe closer to the anniversary again. Most likely alone because I'm not going to put her through that again. I know what she appreciates in a Bond film. And obviously it's not going to be this one because as I'm kind of skimming through the rest of the notes here... She's not going to like, uh, she doesn't like the rest of the movie. Okay, so after that, we get, of course, a great theme song, Diamonds Are Forever by Shirley Bassey, unmistakably in her top five and in my top five as well. So we don't have any issues with that. The, uh, you know, the, the kind of theme song always has some great visuals, so nothing really to remark there. Then we get to kind of the, the diamond smuggling operation where we see Mr. Hint, Wint and Mr. Kidd. And then this is where, of course, we kind of remark some other things about these two goofy villains. Mr. Kidd has a white minivan and doesn't look like she, he should go near kids. He does kind of have a vibe of someone who might not be allowed anywhere near a schoolyard 
Uh, and he does have a white minivan. So those are kind of the two telltale signs that something is kind of going up. Also, when the the South African diamond smuggler fellow, the one who's, who's bringing them out to Mr. Hint, Wint and Mr. Kid, good acting there. Did he win an Oscar for that death scene? And if you can't hear the sarcasm in my voice, uh, that sarcasm coming from her could have cut through glass. She was not being very serious about that whatsoever. It was it was pretty bad. She also doesn't like um, Lois Maxwell as Money Penny in this particular instance of Bond. And I don't know if this opinion is going to change with other Bond movies. I think that Lois Maxwell was one of the quintessential Money Pennies. I know that my wife really likes uh, Naomi Harris as Money Penny right now, and this is. I mean, we didn't really have Money Penny. Well, we did. We had Samantha Bond in, in the Brosnan ones, and I don't think that she made that much of a mark on my wife other than, you know, the virtual reality scene that we reviewed in the last one. Uh, but she doesn't really like Lois Maxwell, so maybe it'll grow on her in, in other movies. We're, we haven't really... We're kind of going backwards here with the Conneries. I don't know if we'll do back to Dr. No or go just to Dr. No and back in chronological order after that. Well, we'll see, but these are going to be once-in-a-lifetime episodes here, folks, so enjoy this one while you can. The other ones will probably be one-offs as well. So yeah, uh, going back to Money Penny, she thought that she was a Russian bad, bad guy and not Money Penny. She doesn't think she's a great Money Penny. The Tiffany, Tiffany Case scene is the one that really comes up next, and she, the, the notes here didn't even know what to say about Tiffany Case. It's kind of a weird, not a weird um, scene, but it's kind of... You know, Tiffany Case doesn't come off as the sharpest tool in the drawer. Jill St. John is a decent enough actress, but she does come off as, as being quite dumb and quite ditzy. Uh, the changing of the, the costumes. And, I mean, she's great to look at. She's, a, she's an attractive woman. But, yeah, we'll see later on. There's there's some stylistic choices that she made that was that were maybe a little bit off. But the, the Tiffany Case scenes were kind of like, ah, you know... I prefer Plenty of Tool. I think Plenty of Tool, uh, the actress who played her, was uh, maybe a little bit more attractive. Still dumb as well, but and and I don't mean dumb as unintelligent. But they're kind of playing up the um, for for Plenty of Tool. They're kind of like playing up as her being like a, a dumb gangster, kind of caught in the middle of all this. But she's pretty, and this is what she spends her time doing. And Plenty of Tool, I feel like they kind of just they dumped her up. Like she's at the craps table, and you kind of think that maybe she's looking for a sugar daddy, and, and she's just dumbing it up on purpose. So when they pick up Sean Connery uh, to to go to the from going from Vegas to the uh, Slumber Inc., which is the the funeral home, there's kind of this awkward scene to my wife um, that all three men are sitting in the front seat on the front bench and it's absolutely uncommon there's no vehicle that's sold today that has a front bench so just to see that that's like really dates the movie but at the same time three grown-ass men sitting side by side by side on the front bench of a car with a dead guy in the back kind of seemed like it was maybe a little awkward then i've got a note here oh well effing loose underwear this is probably the Bambi and Thumper routine. And there was kind of, it was kind of a weird scene too. Not that it wasn't good, but there was kind of a lack of, of music. And, you know, the, the, a lot of these scenes were not really orchestrated as well as they could have. I mean, there could have been some really good scores here and, and they just weren't. And then there's the elephant going through the casino, which is really odd. There was the also the scene, and this is something that... Um, that is another what the shit moment. 
is there's a kind of a scene where they have a, a kind of like a sideshow where they're turning a, a, a young black woman into a gorilla. And so this is the exact quote from, uh, from my wife at the time. Are they really making a black woman turn into a gorilla? What the shit black lives matter. And I'm completely in agreement with that. That is kind of a 60s, 70s thing where they didn't really care. We we're kind of right in between um, the black exploitation kind of film movement. I mean, Live and Let Die is more of a uh, of a um, of a, a black exploitation film than anything else. But in this case, it kind of goes into that without going there, and it really is an awkward scene. There is a slap that kind of just froze the expression on my wife's face, and I don't have any other notes, but what? We're on the uh, movie set kind of part, portion of it, and then there's the um, where he's running through the moon landing set, and he gets onto the moon buggy, and there's probably a good solid five or six minutes where we have no music again to kind of orchestrate this whole process of, of him getting through uh, the moon buggy back to the, the, the fences and all that. And this is where he kind of investigates the satellite development and all that. And so there's no music for that. And it's really, it makes the scene that much longer. Um, and this was kind of one of those stylistic things for the director that I just didn't get why there's no music. And, you know, if you get a, a soundtrack today of a name a movie, that's it. You've got two hours of music for a two hour movie. These seems to have a lot of of gapes, gaping holes in the music and in the soundtrack of this film, and it kind of really makes these awkward silences that much longer. Um, sometimes the sound is really off for the fight scenes and etc. We get back to the um, the the hideout of of Blofeld in a Willard White's tower. For some reason, there's kind of like this toilet scene where it's like he's he's got like a separate office in there. And the toilet paper is yellow. And I don't know if it's a color correction thing. I have the Ultimate Collection on DVD. So I don't know if it's it looks better on Blu-ray. But the toilet paper is yellow. And then we have... I think they find... this is We're, we're getting to the scene or the part where Bond finds um, Mr. Wint's handkerchief. Um, that's got all the, the uh, perfumes built on it. And... My wife compares the this scene and the um, the the actor portrayed here as looking like a gross Dwight, and if you know The Office, you know that Dwight Schrute kind of has a particular look to him, and that maybe he needs a trench coat to kind of balance out. Uh, my wife didn't really understand the the the, the handkerchief thing; it wasn't that obvious. I mean, it was kind of a weird scene, not really a super obvious scene, but we kind of deduced that. You know, he found it related to him and everything. My wife also makes the question, the, the comment later on in the film that did they just film and then get people to dub? And I think that was kind of a common practice back in those days because there are certain actresses and actors. Um, I mean, famously, Gert Froh was was overdubbed by someone else for his appearance in Goldfinger. And I know that a lot of the Bond girls in the Connery era films were actually dubbed by the same English actress. Her name escapes me at the moment, but I do know that that was sort of a common practice at the time to just go out and dub the actress to have the absolute perfect and comprehensible performance. And I don't know if it's because the microphone quality wasn't as good then or they just didn't trust the actor enough to be able to get the performance or they just wanted her for the look 
and they just kind of like you know figured it out later kind of like the reverse of what they do now is they'll touch up movies digitally to get the look they want but they want the performance on screen i think they kind of did the opposite back in the 60s and 70s um all of the dying scenes are really bad uh, according to double wife and so are all the special effects but i'm gonna give it to her that you know the the special effects are bad um, these are practical effects and these are practical effects in the 1970s and they weren't working with a star wars budget and star wars hadn't come out yet star wars was still maybe like a a couple years uh, off and some of the great visual special effects that we see later on in films of that of this late 70s early 80s you know, visual effects were really bad in the, in the 50s and 60s and 70s because they really could only do what they could with what they had. And Diamonds Are Forever really does suffer from having some of the worst special effects in the series because they didn't have great set design, in my opinion, apart maybe from uh, where Barbie and Thumper are when they find Willard White. But, you know, visual effects did get better and better and better, and, and they worked at it, and, you know, there there is a semblance of having better practical effects and as a someone who studied film, I always prefer good practical effects over bad CGI or overuse of CGI. And I can get into a whole thing of it, but there are a lot of films that make do with a with a meager budget and come through with, you know, something good. And when I talk about the set design in Diamonds Are Forever being bad, is the set design in the pre-title sequence was really bad. Um, I don't like it at all. It doesn't look natural. It's not as nice as some of the stuff Ken Adam was doing and some of the stuff we had seen previously, especially on, you know, Goldfinger has great set design. Um, From Russia With Love has some good set design. And uh, Thunderball and You Only Live Twice all had great set design. And here comes Diamonds Are Forever. And it's like, what? I mean, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which is just two years prior, had great set design as well. So it, it's not it, it's not visually that great of a Bond film for those reasons. And my wife agrees. And this was the one and only time she will be watching, reviewing, and enjoying as much as she could Diamonds Are Forever. I hope you enjoyed this review. And I hope you enjoy all of the other Diamonds Are Forever things going on this year. Uh, I will re-release my interview with both uh Joe Darlington, which I spoke about Diamonds Are Forever about earlier in the year. And I will also re-release my interview with Martin Mulder, who also spoke about uh, his upcoming Diamonds Are Forever event ever so briefly, because at the time we did the interview, it had just been canceled. So I will re-release those in celebration of Diamonds Are Forever, as they were always on the old podcast, but they're going to come back to the James Bond complex. So look out for those. And stay tuned for the next episode coming up Wednesday on the James Bond Complex. Thank you. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Intrepid 007 podcast here on the James Bond Complex. Please follow us on our social media accounts at the James Bond Complex and at 007 Intrepid on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Until then, thanks for listening.